to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm honored to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, celebrated and wonderfully distinctive singer-composer Lenny Williams. Becoming a star with a string of 1970s hits as Tower of Power's lead vocalist, he has released new music under his own name during six decades, and he continues to record and perform. Classics featuring his one-of-a-kind voice include So Very Hard to Go, What is Hip, Don't Change Horses in the Middle of the Stream, Only So Much Oil on the Ground, Shudu Fufu-U, Choosing You, Midnight Girl, Cause I Love You, Doing the Loop-de-Loop, -loop, and Don't Make Me Wait for Love. The latter was with Kenny G. And among the others, Williams has also worked with our Graham Central Station, Benny King, and the Crusaders, Wilton Felder. In 2020, he released an album called Fine, and his newest single is called Tonight. Lanny, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually doing daddy duty today, uh, helping my daughter. She's uh, selling her house. And uh, so we're over here packing. And uh, yes, I have to be very gentle with all of the the crystal and all of that good stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> I got me another profession over here. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, he's, she's lucky that you're still able-bodied and can pitch in like that. Most definitely. I think I'm more lucky than her uh, for, for being able-bodied. Yeah, right. But uh, definitely uh, I'm uh, grateful for that. Well, we're grateful too. So grateful you're still doing music and, uh, you know, congratulations getting back out there on the road and it's all good news. Yeah, it's a uh, you know it's been a uh, been a journey uh, you know not only for me but for everybody you know uh, this last uh, you know year and a half uh, with the uh, pandemic COVID virus and uh, not doing any shows and so um, uh, as uh, we got closer you know to uh, you know reopening date I started uh, you know practicing my shows you know in front of the mirror or whatever and. Uh, and so I would, uh, you know, kind of be ready, you know, sort of like shadow boxing or something like that with a boxer, you know, getting ready for the real thing. Uh, but nothing's quite like the real thing, you know. And uh, so uh, this is like uh, this weekend was my um, post, uh, third post COVID show. And uh, so it's uh, it's exciting. And I've got about nine to 10 weeks of shows just lined up weekend after weekend. And so um, the little plant plans that my wife had uh, for us to, you know, do different things and, you know, they kind of all push back and uh, it's like, Hey, we're back to the, the old normal is now the the new normal. Uh, I'm working every weekend just about. That's great. What, what's the most challenging aspect to sort of get back into the groove? Is it, you know, getting your stamina back or getting your, your, your breathing back or what is it? Yeah, I guess just stamina the breathing, you know, I walk every day, walk a couple of miles every day and do well, push-ups every day. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a, uh, you yeah, I hear basketball players say, yeah, you, you look at a basketball player and, and, you know, he's got this beautiful body and young and athletic. And they said, well, being in shape is not the same as being in basketball shape. And so, uh, you know, the same thing with the stage, because, you know, you're doing two or three things at once, you know, you're moving around and you're, you're singing and you're uh, interacting with the audience. If someone says something or whatever. And so, uh, you know, uh, the mind is uh, uh, multitasking, so to speak. And, uh, and so, you know, plus you're, you know, uh, you know, got some, got some movement going on, uh, you know, uh, Hopefully you do. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, even if it's like an old folk shuffle or something, you know, you're doing you know, something. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Uh, and then just singing and being in rhythm with the music and, uh, you know, it, it, it can uh, take a little toll on you, you know. And uh, so, uh, you know, you people look at golfers and they don't put them in the same category of an athlete as, say, a football player or, you know, a track star. Uh, uh, or same with people looking at to say a race car driver, you know, so uh, people look at a, a singer and you say, Oh, just a singer, but yeah, but uh, you know, there's a, a bunch of things going on and uh, and your body has to re- respond to it and you're you know, using your lungs. And so, yeah, I would say that uh, singing is really kind of a, an athletic, uh, athletic thing. You know, I never thought about that that way, but uh, yeah, you, you got to be in shape to, to do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I always think of uh, like Mick Jagger. You know, I remember seeing him at shows long ago when they were doing the giant stadiums and how much he runs up and down the runways and all the stuff he does physically. I'm like, man, he and and even at his age now, he does a lot of that. I'm like, you know, the exercise routine has to be so rigorous. 
Yeah, most definitely. I've got a video of uh, Mick uh, doing his dance lessons and things like that. And, you know, and, and and I think that that's real commendable. You know, that you think that a person who's uh, you know, achieved uh, you know, certain heights uh, that uh, maybe they would kind of, uh, you know, uh, loaf it a little bit but you know when you see other people out there uh doing uh, vocal exercises or dance exercises or even uh, you know some type of calisthenic uh exercise to you know just boost uh you know their performance level then it you know it, it inspires you and there's always something to uh, to inspire you and to aspire to you know and that's part of appreciating, you know, the old school, if you will, because, you know, it's not lip syncing. This is real singing while you're doing it. Um, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. But I see the kids, they lip sync a lot because, they, you know, there's so much emphasis on movement and dancing now. And you see the young kids, you know, he's, uh, doing all this dance and, uh, you know, they have to sing. And so they uh, certain portions of their uh, performance is, is taped. Uh, and, uh, but you know, I mean, even at that, you know, I mean, I guess it's whatever the audience will accept. And so what, uh, was abhorrent or what was, uh, you know, not acceptable, uh, you know, a decade or two is, uh, ago is now acceptable, but even for that, you know, uh, they have to be in a fair amount of shape and, uh, they definitely have to have coordination, uh, with uh, the vocal to to sell it, you know what I mean? That uh, you know that they're that they're singing or they're pantomiming, and it's uh, and you know it has to be in sync. And so you know you say um, yeah the uh, uh, the 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 athletic portion or the you know the cardio that that you need to to make make it happen is uh, is, is paramount. Yeah, so then it becomes you know that fine line between entertainment and singing and. I tend to lean toward the singing side of that equation. So, well, I, I, I'm glad for people that love singers, you know, because uh, sometimes I do shows with people who, you know, who uh, really, uh, you know, have a lot of movement and everything like that. And then, uh, you know, and I move too, but, you know, maybe not to the extent that they do. And then, you know, you just say, hey, you know, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to stand there and I'm going to sing, you know, and, uh, you know, and people, who appreciate singing, they, they enjoy that, you know? And so I think that you, you have to always trust uh, what you do best uh, to get you through, uh, you know, any kind of uh, performance or no matter who you're performing with the uh, opening act or, you know, or headlining act, you know, do you, and then that's uh, the best way for you to, to reach the audience and, uh, you know, have a successful show. Mm-hmm. Well, then I want to rewind on you a little bit uh, right now. So I uh, will test those memory banks, but you know, uh, you were f- born in Little Rock and you moved, I guess, at a young age, I'm not sure what age to the Bay area. How old were you at that time? I was uh, pretty young. I think I was maybe uh, 13, 14, 15 months old, somewhere around in there. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's really young. So, you know, how was it for you growing up in that incredibly musically rich and diverse part of the country? And, you know, how did music get into your blood and gravitate you toward a career in music? Well, I mean, growing up in Oakland, I mean, Oakland is just a tremendous, tremendous uh, city. Uh, I, I, I love it. I've been all over the world and I just, uh, you know, I, I, Oakland's right at the top of my list. Uh, we know we had the Army base here. We had a Naval base. Um, and so um, you just had people coming through all the time from all over the United States, soldiers and sailors. And, uh, you know, some of them stayed, but they brought their taste with them, their food taste, their cultural 
taste, uh, uh, the, the musical uh, taste. And so, uh, and then we're so close to uh, Mexico that, you know, we had that influence in terms of music and, you know, the Latin influence. And so, um, and, and then I lived in, Baker, my grandparents lived in Bakersfield. So we'd go down there and, you know, you had so many people from the South living there that you, you had the country music influence. And so, um, and when we moved to Oakland, we lived uh, right in back of a church. And uh, so uh, I just just walk out of my house and walk right over to the church. If I, if I didn't go, the church came to me because, you know, they're making so much noise in there playing, you know, the guitars and the keyboards and singing. And so um, I was influenced by that. And then right down the street uh, on the same block of the church was the radio station. So it was like, you know, and then it was re it's really weird when I think about it. And then right across the street from the church was the boxing gym. So the three things that I love the most, uh, you know, besides my family and everything, uh, you know, God and my family was, uh, is the church, uh, gospel music and the radio, of course, you know, uh, that plays music and boxing. And they were all right there. I mean, all within steps. And so um, just growing up in a, in a melting pot, uh, or, like, or like Oakland is, and all the various influences uh, even we had a lot right across the bay, bay from San Francisco. So we had a lot of Asian Chinese population. And so, you know, everything was right there, you know, and you go to school, you know, it's just like, okay, it's Chinese, uh, it's, you know, there's the, you know, uh, the, the Latinos, uh, you know, African-Americans. Uh, unfortunately, when I was younger, when I was in elementary school, all the way up until the fifth grade, I didn't go to school with too many whites, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of, uh, it wasn't like the South where there was, uh, you know, enforced legal uh, segregation, but, you know, it was a uh, segregation by neighborhoods, you know, and things like that. So I did go to school with a few uh, white kids. Uh, but uh, then when I got into the fifth grade, we moved to East Oakland, uh, which uh, had uh, it's like, oh, wow, you know, half the class is white, you know. And so and so all those influences, uh, you know, I was just uh, uh, things that I'm interested in, you know, from other uh, cultural aspects and the music. And then I started playing trumpet in the in the I think it was the fourth grade. And so then I started playing all kinds of music and I learned how to read music. So we're playing, you know, John Philip Sousa and all this other kind of stuff. And then at home, I'm listening to, uh, you know, the radio and hearing uh, Lloyd Price and Clyde McFadder and, you know, whomever. But, and then, you know, uh, uh, you know, then, you know, just just every everything. And so I, I was just flooded with all types of uh, music and all types of culture. And, uh, you know, here I am, you know, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, as you're talking, Lenny, it's just bringing back some memories of my own because I kind of went the opposite way up until fourth grade. I was in like a totally white school mm -hmm. and then we moved to Santa Monica, California. It was very integrated and I got exposed to all that music and that kind of started building my love of soul and funk and all of that, you know, when I got immersed in that and I played the saxophone at that age. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was in band, it was really interesting. I'd be over, you know, I'm playing, uh, you know, trumpet and uh, the brass, you know, and uh, and I'd see the woodwinds over there, and they'd all be, you know, you know moistening the, you know, their reeds, and and I, I was like, those guys are so lucky that, that you know, probably that thing probably tastes good, you know. And I'm thinking that it's this, this delicious taste there, and then finally I got a chance uh, to get somebody to, you know, because you know you couldn't really spare them because the school was giving them to you, and so you know you and I didn't want to taste one that someone that, that you know 
put you know, all their saliva on, but finally somebody let me taste one, you know, and it's like, oh, this is nothing, you know. And I'm thinking I'm over there for a couple of years, just like salivating, wanting the, you know, the taste, taste of reed. And I finally got the- <laughs> Hey, flavored reeds. Maybe that's, you know, a business idea. Hey, yeah, right. Hey, we, we'll be on the Riviera with our feet up, you know, somewhere, right? Uh, toasting each other, right? Hey. <laughs> yeah, time to Shark Tank that one. Um, so aside from those couple of people you mentioned, who are some of your, you know, top singing influences and, and heroes? Yeah, when I listen to the radio, so, you know, so I was influenced by so many different people, you know, I'd, I'd like you know, Tennessee Ernie Ford, you know, 16 tons and Bobby Darren. And of course, the coasters and Little Richard, you name it, uh, uh, the platters. But as I got older, the person that I honed in on was uh, Sam Cooke, uh, that uh, that I really you know, uh, thought that I'd like to you know, be like him, uh, partially because, you know, he came from the church and I was in the church and saw him segue out of that. And so, uh, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, that's probably something that I could do. And then I uh, was really inspired about his business acumen, you know, that he owned his own record label and, you know, he owned his own publishing and, you know, I read the Jet magazine and, you know, he had a beautiful home and all of that with a swimming pool. And I thought, oh, I'd like to be like this guy, <laughs> you know, and uh, of course he had hit records, you know, one after another, one after another. And so uh, Sam Cooke was probably the person that I, uh, you know, idolized, uh, not only for the music, but for, you know, uh, a lot of other things. And uh, so I tried to, you know, pattern myself after him uh, to, to a certain extent. I know, Lenny, you cut your first uh, singles, I think, in the late 60s. There were some singles that you did. Um, how did you uh, get your foot into the studio? Well, they had a talent show in Oakland. Uh, um, uh, Don Barksdale uh, had a couple of radio stations. Well, he had radio station KDIA in uh, Oakland. And uh, Don Ducks- Barksdale was uh, African-American. Uh, uh, he was a former uh, basketball player. I think he played for the Celtics, but he was the first African-American to play uh, basketball on the Olympic team uh, for the United States. And so he was a businessman and he had a couple of nightclubs and uh, he had a talent show every Thursday night. And uh, I got talked into doing that by a friend of mine and I would go down and I'd win all the time. And so, I, you know, I built up a kind of like little reputation and I was just kind of getting out of the church too, you know, so, you know, so, you know, nobody really knew me. It's just all of a sudden I'm this new guy on the scene. And uh, one night there happened to be a guy there by the name of Ray Shanklin, who was the A&R for Fantasy Records. And they asked me if I wanted to make a record. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. And uh, so then I took me over to the studio in San Francisco. I met John Fogarty, who had a group uh, called the Gollywogs at that time. And John was actually working in the stock room and uh, met Huey Lewis, who had a group called Clover at that time. And uh, I think the big star uh, for Fantasy Records at that time was Roger Collins, who had a record called She's Looking Good. And, uh, you know, we'd be back there in the studio trying to do our thing. And Roger would pull up in his uh, Lincoln Continental and Saul Zance would come out. Oh, OK, you guys got to get the hell out of here. Here comes Roger. And uh, and so eventually, you know, uh, people started to develop. You know, John hit big, uh, you know, and uh, then, uh, you know, Huey, Huey uh, you know, uh, hit big. And you know, I was kind of like a late bloomer. And then eventually, you know, uh, you know, I, I hit. Yeah. 
amazing to me when I hear those songs from back then, I, you know, it's still unmistakably you, in my opinion, you know, you, you have that sound at a early age. Did you sort of always have that sound and style or did you develop it? Well, I think I maybe developed some. Um, I remember there was a, we, I went to, a, I grew up in a, a pretty large church, right? And then uh, in my teenage years, I joined a really small church and uh, you know, became kind of a big fish in a small pond. And we had a, a guy join our church. He had gotten out of the Navy and he decided to stay in, in Oakland and instead of going back where he was from. And he had a tape recorder and, and all the young people at the church would go over his house and we'd socialize and we'd sing. And he says, everybody sounds good. He said, but the tape recorder loves your voice. I remember him saying that, you know, it's like the tape recorder loves you, loves your voice. And so then I started thinking that I had something uh, distinctive, you know, and um, but the church was small. It didn't have a lot of microphones. I think it was only one microphone that was for the preacher. And if you were leading the song, they'd pass it around to you. But if you were just singing or if we did congregational songs, you know, you, uh, you know, you just had to project. And so it was a lot of women in the church, you know, and uh, and, you know, their voices are high. And and I'd be singing these congregational songs, you know, and couldn't hear myself you know so I just started trying to say I gotta find some way where I kind of pierce through that you know and so I kind of developed that and then uh you know growing up playing the trumpet you know trumpet players you know first thing we want to do is you know play high and so the combination of those uh two things um uh just uh I think helped me develop you know my my style and did your experience with trumpet, I mean, did you then know how to read music and have some foundation musically that helped you? Well, I knew how to read music. Uh, you know, I knew basically the treble clef because the trumpet's on the treble clef. I did have a teacher, Mr. Leffler, who would uh, occasionally, when I would uh, come into class, would say, uh, hey, Williams, uh, I said, yes, sir. And he's like, uh, you're playing the trombone today. The trombone's on the bass clef. And he says, well, Gone and planning, and it's like I, you know, I, I didn't like him really. You know, it's like, why did you do that to me? But you know, as now that uh, you know I'm older, I, I realized what he was doing. He was like, I want you to understand, you know, both, you know, both staffs, you know. And um, but when I when I was singing in church, I don't really think that I looked at it from a point of view of uh, you know lines and spaces or anything like that. I just kind of did what what I felt. You know, I think that um, um, the kind of music that I grew up, you know, uh, you know church uh, and uh, R&B and things of that nature, uh, when I was coming up, it was about uh, emotion and feel. And um, but I do understand uh, how important um, uh, reading music is because uh, someone can sit on the side and they can analyze it and they can say, oh, usually this, you know, usually this tempo, so many, you know, the beat is, you know, you can count it out and, you know, you can uh, kind of, uh, you know, look at it and analyze uh, the structure of the chords and things like that. And you can mimic it and you could basically uh, you know, reproduce it or write songs in that particular genre because you you studied it and you have, uh, a, you know, kind of a cerebral or mathematic, uh, you know, approach to it. Uh, but mine at that particular time was more about just my feel, the emotion of the of the music. Uh, and I think that that's probably the way it all started, you know, in the, the cotton fields, uh, you know, of the South. Uh, it was all about emotion and about uh, feeling and 
life and the way life was uh, affecting you and your your family or whatever, you know. So, uh, and I think that it's really important not to lose that. Uh, you know, I you know I have friends that you know gone to Juilliard and to you know all the Berkeley School of Music and things of that nature, and uh, it's like. Okay, you know you 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 got all that down, but you don't want to you know sanitize it to the point that you lose you know that that Ray Charles feel or you know or you know that kind of thing like that. You know you you get. To, I mean, I think that's true for not only uh, 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 you know music, soul music, but I think that's true. I mean, uh, Hank Williams Jr. or Hank Williams Senior, really. You know, I mean, I would just imagine that he was just you know just a soulful cat, you know, and, uh, and, you know, just singing, you know, hillbilly music and, you know, singing, you know, the music that he heard growing up. You don't want to over intellectualize it and you got to keep that grit yeah, and, um, and the emotion, you know, so absolutely. Um, so, you know, being in that area in the, in the Oakland area, you know, how much were you enamored with people like Sly and the Family Stone and, you know, Tower of Power, who obviously we're going to talk about, but, you know, some of these really uh, Grateful Dead, you know, some of these really well-known uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane, were you really into that or was it just like the rest of the country? They were just, you know, these bands making music. Well, some of them was just some of the bands making music and then some of it, you know, I was really into it. I actually, I, I went to church with the, the Stewart family, which is Sly's family, you know, so, uh, you know, I would see them all the time, them, the Hawkins family. Uh, we would associate with, uh, you know, Andre Crouch and Billy Preston. You know, we were all teenagers. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, we would interact with them, uh, Andre and Billy, but they were all down in Los Angeles, but we'd have musicals uh, and they'd come up, uh, you know, to Oakland or we'd go to Los Angeles and we'd have these sing-offs, you know, we call them musicals and everybody's trying to outdo everybody. And, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, so I grew up around that. And, uh, and I think that the, it, it inspired me, you know, Larry Graham was very instrumental in, uh, you know, my development, uh, you know, grew up, you know, uh, around the whispers, you know, people like that. And so, uh, I mean, there was a lot of blues coming out of Oakland, Lowell, Folsom, you know, uh, Jimmy McCracklin, you know, people like that, you know, were here. And then we had 7th Street, you know, where I lived when I was a kid, where my church was and the boxing gym. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, a black Wall Street, so to speak, you know, they had a movie theater and they had clubs just lined up and down the street. And uh, I didn't know at the time, but, you know, B.B. King and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Cab Calloway and all those people were coming down there when I was a little kid, you know, my parents would go out. But, you know, so I grew up around that. And um, and so I think that that was a, a great influence for me. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, so I watched all these guys, you know, Carlos Santana, you know, I watched, I, I mean, I'm sitting there watching that happen, you know, um, watching Sly and the Family Stone happen, uh, watching, uh, you know, the, the Grateful Dead happen, you know, hanging out with uh, Mike Bloomfield and, you know, and, uh, you know, just, you know, up there trying to, uh, you know, to find my way, uh, but yet trying, you know, to, to not uh, get caught up in the vices of, you know, drugs and all the other stuff that was going on, you know, in the, you know, the, the movement at that time. Uh, so, you know, so being cautious, uh, but, you know, yet being there and just watching people that I, you know, like John Fogarty, you know, somebody that, 
you know, I'm seeing working in the stock room and then, you know, you know, eight months later, he's, uh, you know, headlining the Oakland auditorium and, uh, and, uh, uh, Harrison is it Wilbur Harrison or whatever who wrote Kansas City is opening up for him, you know, and it's like it was it was just phenomenal. But it let me know that hey, if it happened for them, it could happen for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lenny, what were the steps or sequence of events that led to you connecting with Tower of Power? Well, I did a record for Fantasy, and uh, after. And I had never actually been on stage with, with a band. And so uh, a friend of mine is like, well, when are you going to do a show? And I was like, I don't know. I've got to get a band and all that. And so one of my neighbors told me that the mailman, his side gig was managing bands. And so she hooked me up with him. And he said, we're going to go out to Fremont. And there's a little band out there. So Fremont is a suburb of uh, Oakland and uh, maybe 40 miles, 35, 40 miles outside of Oakland. And uh, we drove down there and he introduced me to this band called the Motown Soul Band. And uh, I think uh, half of them were out of high school and the other half were still in high school. Because like, you know, I'm 20, 21, you know, or 20, almost about to be 21. I want to play in clubs. And I'm thinking, you know, how are we going to get these kids in the clubs? And so we did a couple of little things together and then it was like, you know, this is not going to work, you know, for me. So then I went, you know, uh, just started concentrating in Oakland and uh, I met Larry Graham. And it was really interesting. Uh, Sly and everybody had moved, uh, moved to L.A. to, you know, they went Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And and the only one that was left was Larry. And you know, he had a very distinctive car and uh, it's kind of orange. Uh, Pontiac all souped up and everything, muscle car. And I would see him and I said, one of these days, I'm going to get a chance to meet that guy. Right. And, um, and I never could meet him. It's just like everywhere I'd go, somebody would be talking, Oh, that guy, Larry Graham was just here. I'm like, Oh my God, I just missed him. If I'd have been here a half hour early, you know, I just kind of like in my mind felt that if I meet this guy and he finds out how talented I am, he's going to be able to help me. And so one, uh, but I get a snake bitten. I just couldn't, ever, you know, tie him down or, you know, or coordinate. And then uh, one day I'm driving down the street and I see his car with the hood up and I'm like, oh my God, this is my opportunity. So I had a 1962 Jaguar at that time. And uh, I had every tool imaginable in my trunk because my car would break down all the time. So I stopped and I helped him. I introduced myself and then uh, told him I knew Sly and we had kind of grown up together. And he said, oh, what are you doing tonight? I said, oh, just nothing. He says, well, come by the house. You know, we always have jam sessions. So I was on my way up there. And then my home uh, training kind of kicked in. And my mom was like, you know, when you go to people's house, you know, always bring something. So I stopped and got a bottle of wine. And so when he opened the door, I gave it to him. And he's like, man, I invite people up here all the time. You're the first person that ever brought something. And so we became fast friends. Next thing I know, when he'd go out of town, you know, he'd give me his keys uh, to his cars and I go get the oil change, you know, kind of, you know, working my way in, uh, you know, take his dog for a walk or whatever. Next thing I had the keys to his house. And then uh, we just started doing music together. And so uh, we were writing these songs, which turned out to be uh, the first songs on the Graham Central Station album, you know, so, and, uh, 
He said, I'm going to put some horns on this stuff. I'm going to call this band Tower Power to come over. So they come over and they walk through the door. And I'm like, oh, these are the kids from the Motown Soul Band, right? So we reunite. I just started writing songs for them. You know, and I wrote songs on the, you know, their album that they did. And uh, eventually, you know, they had problems with their singer. And uh, well, it's like, hey, Lenny writes songs. He sings. You know, let's let's get Lenny. And uh, so I got the phone call and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And that's how that's how that happened. You know, it's kind of a slow process, you know, cooking, cooking, cooking. And then all of a sudden it's it's done. It's ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. So the lesson there is be persistent, always bring something and have the right tools. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so that first record, you know, what was it like uh, getting in there and, and working with T.O.P. And, and putting that together and hitting so big. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when they, when I joined Tom Palmer, they had that record finished and Rick Stevens' voice was on it. They even had the album cover finished and everything. So the album co- cover was a character of everybody up there. You know, I guess they took a photo and then they kind of had an artist kind of draw everybody. Yeah, right. So what they did was, uh, hold that up again. What they did was they went in and just took Rick's picture out of there and put my picture in there. All right. Yes. Yeah, right. And then uh, I just re-sang all the songs. I just every song I went in and I, you know, they said, you want to hear? I said, no, I don't want to hear his voice because I don't want to be influenced and I don't want to copy him. You'll just play me the songs. Let me do my own thing. So I went in and I did all the songs. Bam. And then um Put the record out and it was really interesting i'm driving on the street one day and i stopped at the store to get me a, a coke or something and i go in that's when they used to sell uh albums at record stores i mean at, at liquor stores right or any you know any kind of store you go in they might have a you know a shelf with a, a rack with a, and so i see the, the record right so i go pick it up and it was one of them that it slipped through that had rick's picture still on the front i looked under the back it had my name you know, as the, the lead singer on all of these songs, but it had Rick's picture. And I was just heartbroken, devastated, angry, whatever. So I, uh, I it was pre-cell phones, pre-beeper or anything. So I think I went to the uh, phone booth outside and I called my manager and called the manager Tower Power and I told them and everything. And so, they, you know, they, you know, put a stop to it and, you know, and whatever. And I was thinking now that thing is a collector's item. I said, I should have bought the whole rack, <laughs> you know what I mean? And sell them for a thousand dollars a piece. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, kind of how that got started. And then, um, you know, the sec- you know, I, I think I'd written one song for them on, on that album. I can't remember which one it was. And, uh, and I had written uh, a song on the previous album and uh, so then uh, when we did uh, the Back to Oakland album, then, you know, then I just started writing. I think I wrote about four songs on, on the, the Back to Oakland album. Yeah. What was it like, Lenny, when you first heard one of those tracks on the radio? Oh, when I first heard So Very Hard to Go on the radio, it was just amazing. And then uh, my good friend, David Stallings, who I wound up writing a lot of songs with, we'd be riding down the street and it was like a hit. So it was like. Every time you turn the radio on, you'd hear it, right? So we'd be riding down the street and, come, ah, you know, we, you know, it's like, oh, there you go. You know, it's like, you know, it was just like you couldn't escape it. You know, it was just, you know, just it was, it was phenomenal, you know. And, and it's like, you know, you, you're working hard to make that happen. You, you wonder if it is going to happen. There's so much talent out there. And then when it does happen, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, 
it's kind of hard to describe, you know, but it was, you know, it's, it's all, you know, elation, you know, at its, you know, at its peak, you know, so to speak, yeah. Um, what was it like being in the studio with those cats? It was fun, you know, it was a lot of weed, you know, a lot of, uh, because I said, I sing with a lot of emotion. So, uh, so a lot of times I would be singing and, um, I had no regard, you know, to growing up with gospel music and R&B, um, you know, just very little changes, you know, it's, uh, you know, and so the doctor would sometimes say, hey, hey, ALW, I wrote a song that's got 15 changes in it, you know, and I'm like, good for you, but bad for me, because I got to, you know, I got to, you know, compensate for all those changes, you know, I can't, I just can't do my R&B thing, I can't, you know, just you know, just be soulful. I gotta be like, okay, there's a change coming up. I gotta, you know, and so, uh, so some of the music uh, was 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 difficult for me. You know, uh, below us, all the city lights or something like that. You know, they had certain certain changes, uh, but you know, it was challenging. And um, and uh, you know, but uh, yeah, but we had we had fun in the studio. Most definitely, uh, like I said, there was you know, I, I wasn't like. Yeah, I had smoked weed before I got in the band, but when I got in the band, you know, it was it was a lot of lot of lot of weed, uh, a lot of drinking. I never did drink, uh, but I did smoke weed, and then you know, eventually, you know, the band just be, uh, you know, people know, but the band became just a huge drug band. You know, what I mean, it was all the way everything from from weed to you know heroin, you know, quaaludes, and you know, which I never got involved in. I didn't do any heroin, you know, any uh, you know the cocaine stuff. But we had uh, you know four four guys in our band mainlining heroin, you know, and uh, I, I listened to these kids down uh, in, in Houston, you know, uh, this uh, certain derivative of rap is called screw music, where they slow it down real slow, and it's you know it's like you know it's real popular, right? And you know they oh we inv-, you know screw music's out of here. I said no 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 no, Tower of Power, Tower of Power invented screw music because we hit a town. Where you know the you know the the heroin addicts would uh, score, and we'd be what is hip? And tell me, tell me if you think you know. And then their go their bodies back there trying to hold in that if you're really hip. The rest, you know, just slow down, you know. And it was like uh, I said, so uh, we didn't do it. We didn't invent it cerebrally, but uh, but uh, you know, but by what was going on and the way that the the the, the Guys were slowing down and nodding out, you know, that were on the heroin. Uh, it definitely, you know, was a challenge to, you know, to keep the keep the groove up because we had uh, two of the guys were um, in the rhythm section. And so, uh, you know, definitely, you know, that's where the, you know, the rhythm of the, the band uh, comes from. And uh, so uh, it was uh, it was you know, it was interesting. And it's really funny. Uh, we'd be. Uh, getting ready to go on stage and everybody's doing something. So they're smoking weed, somebody's drinking, somebody's banging, you know, uh, somebody's snorting. And I uh, happened to do a show with Tower Power, I guess right before Isaac Hayes passed away for a radio station out in Oakland. And uh, so we decided we'd do some songs together. And so uh, we get ready to go on stage and then Emilio's get everybody gets in a circle and they're holding hands and they're praying. I'm like, oh my God. This is such a 360 degree <laughs> change from when I was, uh, you know, young and we were in the band, you know, everybody's, you know, drugging up and now, uh, you know, here everybody's praying, you know, and uh, so it was, 
it's nice to see that people over the, the years are able to, uh, you know, overcome, you know, their addictions and things like that. And I'm just grateful that, uh, you know, that I never dove in, you know, that I, you know, maybe put my foot in the, in the three feet, four foot, you know, but, uh, you know, anything beyond that, I, you know, shied away from, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. What, what was the, um, chemistry like of the group though? I mean, obviously it was something special. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, we got along really well. You know, I mean, uh, you know, there was, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I seen Emilio fire a couple of people, you know, and uh, so obviously there were some things going on that I wasn't privy to, you know, uh, you may be some well, personal uh, things that happened, you know, uh, you know, some, Willie Fulton get fired, you know, a guitar player, then they brought Bruce Conti in, uh, you know, uh, you know, so there were, you know, certain things that, you know, that were happening. And uh, but but for the most part, everybody, you know, we all kind of got along, you know, you know people from, you know, there was different cultures. You know, Emilio was, uh, you know, Greek and uh, Mexican and, uh, you know, the majority of the band, you know, was European, uh, uh, you know, descent, uh, you know, me, Chester, African-American. Uh, but um, everybody seemed to get along. Uh, you know, most of the time, I remember uh, after our "So Very Hard to Go" came out, and Mimi came to me and says, "I I I see that the that a lot of people on the radio now are saying like uh, Lenny Williams and Tower Power," and but he says that's okay, you know, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't have a you know a publicist, a private publicist, or anything like that, you know. Uh, but but I think that there might have been a little rumbling about it. And I remember we were on the bus one day and we were in New York and we were heading somewhere, you know, Connecticut or Boston or something. And we we're, you know, four o'clock in the morning, everybody's tired from the gig before. And we we're just riding down. All of a sudden, Mick Gillette says, what are you going to do, Lynn? What are you going to do? You know, and I guess they're thinking that, you know, that I'm leaving the band or something. I had yeah, what was it, you know, planning on doing that. And then we, we kind of got an argument. Right. And so it's like we're going to. I'm standing up with a, you know, an F you or whatever. And he's like, you know, and, and then uh, I'll never forget it. Rocco was nodding out, you know, from the heroin, right? But somehow or another, he manages to wake up, uh, you know, and he looks at me and he says, you know, he was an AAU wrestler, right? So I'm thinking, oh, I thought kind of end this uh, confrontation real quick because I can see that this bus is rolling down and jump you know you know jumping up and down and and I could just see myself you know in a knot sometimes in a knot between you know these seats and everything so it's like you know I didn't wave the white flag but I I used every bit of diplomacy that I you know, <laughs> had ever seen or been taught in my life you know to quell that so Mick and I you know we would laugh about that before he passed away you know how uh how close we came to you know getting into it you know and and, and at that time I you know, I wasn't even contemplating leaving the band, you know, later on I did, but, um, but for the most part, we all got along, you know, I mean, you know, uh, but I think that, um, you know, you got that many people and guys and you got ego and, you know, uh, uh, you know, people writing songs, some songs get in, some songs don't, you know, uh, that, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, differences of opinion of people feeling like that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that they're not being, treated equal or they're not getting enough of the pie, but I, you know, I've never, you know, there were never any fights or 
anything like that. Uh, you know, it was uh, everybody, you know, they handled it. Yeah, it was, it was civil, very civil. Where did you get your inspiration and talent for uh, songwriting? My mother loved, absolutely loved country music. She loved it. And then, you know, I, you know, I grew up reading the Bible and uh, I, uh, I remember that uh, I, I read the, the newspaper a lot. I like to read the books and, uh, and, and I remember reading, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, I'll think of it sooner or later, but a book and, uh, and they had a thing on songwriting and, uh, and then I would just kind of like listen to records and I'd say, oh, they got a little part where they kind of come in with the music, which I later found out is the intro. And then they have a verse and, you know, they kind of talk about, you know, sing about what, what the song is. And then they do this little part where they just keep on talking about the title of the song, which I eventually realized was the chorus. And then they go somewhere, you know, you know, crazy. And then I eventually realized that, you know, that's called the bridge. And then they come back to what they're talking about, which is the course, and then they do another verse. And so that was the structure that I kind of learned. And it's it kind of interesting now, uh, most of these modern songs don't even have a bridge in them anymore, you know? <laughs> and that's like, well, where'd that go? Yeah, you know? And so I just kind of started learning, but my mom, like I said, she, um, she, she loved country music. And, you know, I mean, it's like the stories in country music are, you know, it's just really interesting, you know? I mean, they, you know, they just sing about anything and everything, every aspect of life and, uh, you know, the, the song titles, you know. And so I just uh, kind of got my inspiration from from that. And uh, and I just, uh, you know, just started trying to develop it, you know, just uh, writing songs. Uh, like I said, and in, in the Bible, the Bible has so many parables. And then I just started realizing that, you know, songwriting is really about life and you just you'll keep your eyes and your ears open and, and you're going to hear, you know, you're going to hear song titles and, you know, songs every day, you, what, what people say to you or what they say to other people or whatever, you know? And uh, so I just try to keep my eyes and ears open and do a lot of listening. And so whatever's on somebody's mind, somebody's heart, uh, you know, whether it makes them feel good, makes them feel sad or, you know, or whatever, you know, those are all stories. And if you can condense that into three minutes, you know, back then it was two minutes and 56 seconds, you know, if you want to get a record on the radio or two minutes and 13 seconds, it kept on going up. Now some of these songs are five minutes or whatever, but average, but uh, you know, so that's kind of like how I, uh, you know, developed it. Yeah. And when you were laying down the vocal tracks for uh, tower of power, did you get much uh, direction or suggestions? Or you just kind of came up with your own parts and your own nuances, and yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So yeah, I never, no, nobody said, hey, say hey, hey, or, or you know, or you know, yeah. So basically, I you know did that all on my own, and uh, and, and eventually that's what led me to really feel like that. A lot of times, I think that songwriters, you know, should uh, get uh, writing credits. Uh, on, on, on a lot of songs uh, because uh, and some, and some people disagree with me. They say, hey, you know, I mean, you know, uh, 
people take liberty, you know, with the instruments and they do whatever. But usually, you know, with instruments, you 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 know, you going to, when I was in Hollywood, you know, people come in and you know they got the chart written out and they read the chart and bam, you know, and you know uh, every now and then somebody would say, well, you know, you might do something and the arranger would say, no, I don't like that or you know, just stick to the chart or, yo, I like that or whatever. And then I say, well, you know, if uh, somebody wanted to write out a, a chart for me to sing, you know, their melody, then, you know, then uh, so be it. You know, I do, I could do that. And, you know, but you don't get, you know, you know, the oohs and the ahs or, you know, or, or anything like that. And, and it's really kind of interesting because I listen to, you know, music like, you know, Frank Sinatra or, or listen to Nat King Cole. It, it was basically, it just took a melody that was given to them and it was more their voice and their phrasing uh, of, of that. But there was, there were, there weren't a lot of ad-libs, you know, sometimes I try to think, when did ad-libs come into, into music, you know, with the vocalist, uh, you know, uh, uh, and now, you know, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so predominant. And, uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I've never just like put my foot down and said, oh, well, I'm just going to sing it the way you gave it to me uh, because, you know, I want to do a good job. I want, you know, people call me, you know, and I want to be a part of, of you know, successful records. But uh, in my mind, I do think that, you know, songwriters who, improvise I mean singers who improvise on a record and make it happen should get some equity in uh the the songwriting yeah yeah and uh um and, and a lot of people uh, disagree with that you know but uh that you know just still this the way I, I feel about that definitely some gray area mm -hmm. yeah yeah do you recall when you first came up with some of your signature uh, stylistic uh, elements like the, you know, I can't sing at all, but the oh, 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 oh kind of stuff? No, it's really interesting. Uh, I, uh, I, kind of, I don't know how that came up with that, to be honest. I, uh, I thought I knew when the first time I did it. And then I was listening to something on YouTube a couple of years ago, it was like, oh, I did that two years before I thought that I, you know, when I thought that, you know, this was the landmark, you know, this was the, you know, the origin and uh, the first time I did it. And, uh, you know, so I don't really know, but I do know that I, uh, you know, just in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I, I like the way Otis Redding sang and I was listening to a lot of Otis Redding and a lot of times he was very staccato and some of the stuff that he did, you know, especially in the vamps. And I'm just wondering, you know, was that a derivative, the OOO that I do, a derivative of some of the things that he did? But I, I really have no idea, you know. Uh, but I think it was uh, it was post Tower Power. I know that. I mean, it's, you know, as far as being on a on a record now, maybe I did it sometimes, uh, uh, you know, while I was there. And, uh, you know, uh, in a live performance, but, uh, you know, but just going back and just kind of like looking at the records, you know, uh, the first time I, I ever heard it was, uh, was post Tower Power. And, uh, but I, I don't, you know, I don't think it was like a, 
a cerebral decision. I'm going to, I'm going to do that right here. You know, I think it just came out. And then I remember I was, and then I remember I was doing it a lot. And then after a uh, I love you came out and I was doing a show in New York at the bottom line. And I was reading uh, an article about the, the record that I had just put out. And uh, one of the critics was somehow how good the record was, but he thought that I did the OOO too much, right? And so then I made just made a decision that I wasn't going to do it on the following record. And then I was like, you know, sometimes I look back and I say, well, did I make a mistake by, you know, letting someone else's position or, or you know, uh, on on that affect, you know, my creativity, uh, you know, or my approach to a record and say that I'm not going to do it, you know? And, uh, you know, but it's just interesting, but it has, uh, you know, it's, it's, it has really been beneficial to me, been a blessing to me that uh, that I came up with it, how I came up with it, uh, when I came up with it, I have no idea. Well, I think one of the great credits to, to you, at least from my perspective, is, you know, you're one of the handful of singers, really, that I'll find myself hearing somebody and thinking, they have, I'll say they're Lenny Williams-esque or, you know, that they have that quality to their voice or their style uh, because it's that distinctive. Well, I mean, I've been told that, you know, and, uh, you know, I just do what, do what I do, you know. Uh, I think I, I had uh, some uh, uh, degree of, uh, of developing it, you know what I mean, uh, you know, developing what I do, my style. And then a lot of it, I think, is just that, uh, you know, just where I grew up and how I grew up, you know, the fact that I played trumpet, the fact that I went to this little small church and I wanted to hear myself when we sing congregational songs, you know, it's like 35, 40 people in the church, no microphones, and you've got all these women singing and uh, singing and my voice is not, you know, coming through. Uh, and, um, and, you know, just a blessing and, uh, you know, good you know, good fortune that uh, what, what I do uh, seems to, to resonate with people. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.